Well, hey, Midtown. It's good to be here. Um, it's good to see so many new faces, so many, not old faces, but familiar faces. It would be rude if I called you old faces, so I won't do that. Um, I thank God tremendously for the chance to come back and, and be here with you guys this morning. Um, I know that it's been an incredibly difficult two years here at this campus congregation. <laughs> um, but God has carried you and us through it. I thank God for Jamal. I thank God for a leader with uh, a heart for his people, a leader with deep integrity, and a man who's weathered these storms with strength and with grace. Um, we sing a song here that's based on Psalm 126, and it says that those who are weeping will go out with songs of joy. And I believe that songs of joy are the future for Midtown. So uh, I thank God for holding you here, holding his church, caring for his church, and have faith in that continuing in the days ahead. Um, like I said, it's an honor to be here. I'm humbled uh, to be here, and I'm excited to be here and, and open up the book of Esther with you. And uh, your, your reading was from Esther chapter 4. We're actually going to do the whole book <laughs> because it's, it's a story that, that I think really the full context needs to kind of uh, be, be held in light. So I'm not going to read the whole book, but we're going to talk about the whole book. Um, and it's a fascinating book because the authorship is unknown. And it's a controversial book. There's at no point in the entire text does it mention the name of God. Um, and because of that, there have been various movements throughout the centuries where people would, would like to see it removed from the Bible. Uh, notably, Martin Luther hated this book, uh, in part because he was kind of anti-Semitic and he thought it was too Jewish, um, but also in part because of these... Uh, 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 these, these other questions, why God's name is absent from the text. Um, but it's a, it's a beautiful story, and it's a powerful story of redemption and of God's providence. So to set it up, we'll, we'll start at the beginning, which is um, the story opens with a feast, a massive feast that a king named Xerxes is throwing. And the feast lasts for days, and it's a wild, drunken party. And at some point, the, the, well, the reason he's holding this feast is because he's, he's raising money. So he calls all the wealthy people of the kingdom together and throws this feast, and they bring tribute, they bring gold, they bring weapons, they bring whatever they can contribute to the upcoming war, because Xerxes is going to take Persia to war against the Greeks. So it's this big fundraiser, and towards the end of the party, he calls for his wife. Her name was Vashti. He calls for his wife, and she doesn't come. And we don't know exactly what's going on there, but there's sort of an implication that something sexual is implied, that she's going to be humiliated. So she refuses to come, and as a result, he's infuriated, and he banishes her. So Vashti's banished. He doesn't have a wife anymore. He goes to war against the Greeks. If you know your Greek history, you know that this does not go well for Xerxes. He's humiliated. Um, they, he's, he's crushed by the end, and he's broke because he spent all his money on this failed campaign. Um, he gets back from this, and he's meeting with his advisors, and he's depressed. He's broke. He doesn't have a wife. He doesn't really have anything to kind of pull the kingdom together and get them excited. And one of the advisors suggests that they get a new queen, and he says, here's how you can get a new queen. We're, we're going to round up all the beautiful young versions of Persia, and you can sleep with every single one of them, and whichever one you like best, you make her the queen. 
And of course, Xerxes thinks this is a great idea. So this happens. They begin to go around and you know, essentially kidnap uh, every young woman in Persia, every unmarried young woman in Persia, and take her to Susa, take her to the citadel, uh, where they're imprisoned, essentially, until, uh, until their time with the king. And this is a miserable thing. You know, sometimes this gets held up. Uh, there's, there's a lot of like VeggieTales versions of the book of Esther that sanitize it a lot. Um, this is a very dark book. And what's going on in this, in this situation, this is essentially human trafficking. And it's the end of a life for these young women. Because once you've, once you've slept with the king, you can't ever know another man. So they're locked up in the harem for life at this point. And part of what's going on, part of the motivation of this as well, is that this is a way for him to sort of re-exert control, re-exert authority by, you know, by showing how powerful he is, by showing that he can get this done. So this begins, and then in Esther chapter 2, we meet the main real characters of this book, which are Mordecai and Esther. Let's take a look at starting in verse 5. It says, In the fortress of Susa there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconia of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is, Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Hegai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Hegai, the keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her and from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. So let's break down a few things from this passage that are important. The first is that in this, in this opening verse, uh, there's a number of striking contrasts. It says, in the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, and Benjaminite. Now, if you were an, an original reader of this text, whenever it was written, that would have made your head hurt because there's a number of contrasts that just don't make sense. See, when the Jews were brought into exile, they were brought into exile as exiles, as refugees. They tended to cling together and live in what were essentially ghettos. Uh, they were mistreated, they were distrusted, they were, they were treated very poorly. And yet, here we see he's living in the fortress of Susa, which is the center of power. The people who lived in the fortress were the, you know, the most powerful businessmen and the politicians and the, the best of the soldiers. And so, for some reason, Mordecai has made his way into the center of power in uh, Persia. The second thing that would give you a headache reading this is that his name is Mordecai. Now today, Mordecai is a very common Jewish name, but at the time, it wasn't a Jewish name. It's a Persian name. In fact, it's a Persian name named after the god Marduk. So it's a Jewish guy living outside of the Jewish ghetto with a Persian name that honors another god. We can see almost instantly this guy is compromised in profound ways. Moving on. 
Verse 6, it says, He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconia of Judah into exile. So Mordecai is not somebody who's grown up in exile. He didn't grow up in Persia. He grew up in Jerusalem. He grew up in a place where he would have lived out the liturgies and the rhythms of Jewish worship and Jewish life. So he knows better. That's the reason that, passage, that verse is there. They're telling you Mordecai is compromised and he knows better. He knows he's not supposed to be living the way he's living and doing what he's doing. Likewise, when we meet Esther, we see that she's a girl with two names. Her name is Esther and her name is Hadassah. Hadassah is a Hebrew name. Esther is a Persian name. And Esther is also named for a Persian god, a goddess actually named Astrid. So you see these two characters and it's, it's remarkable uh, to see them with these Persian names. It reminds me of an old joke. There's an old Jewish comedian named Jackie Mason and in one of his routines, he was complaining about the fact that American Jews weren't giving their, their kids Jewish names anymore. He says, I look around and all I see is Tiffany Schwartz and Jeff, Jessica Lipschitz. What's next? Crucifix Finkelstein? <laughs> Esther and Mordecai have names like Crucifix Finkelstein. They're shocking, they're jarring, it's, it would be confusing. These are profoundly compromised people. And if you look at this first half of the story of the book of Esther, you see at no point do they seem resistant to anything about Persian culture. They seem to be willing participants in the things that are taking place. And it's important that we contrast that with something like Daniel. In Daniel's story, Daniel too was raised in Jerusalem, taken into exile, but when he was in exile, he refused to compromise his identity. When it was illegal to pray, he prayed. When, it was, when he was commanded to eat from the king's table, he did not eat from the king's table. He refused. And he was threatened with death over and over for, for breaking those laws. But he would rather face death than compromise his identity. So it's an important contrast. It's a deliberate contrast. And again, the, the, the Jews that were taken into exile, they were warned not to do this. They were warned of a, a way of being uh, that they were supposed to carry out in exile. In particular, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah warns them, here's how you're supposed to live. Here's what life in exile is supposed to look like. Jeremiah 29, um, he's speaking to the exiles and he's speaking in the midst of a conflict because you had essentially sort of a conservative group and a liberal group. And the conservative group was sitting there saying, look, we are, uh, uh, we are God's people and we've been taken into exile, but this isn't going to last very long. So don't even unpack your bags. God is sure to save us. Uh, surely this is all some sort of big theological geopolitical mistake and God's going to fix it and we're going to go back home. And then you had another group of people going, I don't know what you're talking about. Our God lost the war. When they, when they saw war taking place, it wasn't just nation against nation. It was gods versus gods. Our God lost the war. We need to start worshiping these other more powerful gods. We need to assimilate. We need to lose our sense of identity. And Jeremiah spoke in the midst of this conflict in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4, where he says, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their, their produce. Find wives for your daughters and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. 
Look at the verbs in that passage. It says build, live, plant, marry, multiply, pursue the well-being, thrive. They were meant to root themselves in this place. It actually says, I deported you to this place. God is saying, I did this. I put you here, and I put you here for a purpose. You're meant to thrive. But he says, pray to the Lord for the city. Pray to the Lord, meaning continue to worship me. Stay who you are as Jews. Continue in your worship. Continue to preserve your identity and try to make this place thrive. What you see in Mordecai and Esther are two people who have ignored this or who have lost sight of it or who have lost touch with it. They've compromised. To the Persians, they look like Persians. Nobody knows that they're Jewish. Nobody knows that Mordecai and and Esther are Jewish. So as the story moves along, uh, she wins the favor of, the, of Haggai, the, the head of the harem. He you know, gives her special treatment, and lo and behold, she pleases the king the most and becomes the queen. As the story moves along, uh, what happens next it seems like a kind of odd side note. Mordecai, uh, Mordecai finds, discovers a plot to take the life of the king. Uh, There are two men uh, plotting to assassinate the king, and he goes to Esther, and he warns her about this. She warns the king, and these two men are found out, and the the text tells us that they were hanged. But in Persia, they didn't hang you with a rope. They impaled you on a spike and put the spike up in the air. Again, this is not the VeggieTales version of the story. (laughs) Uh, This is dark stuff. This is violent, a violent, violent, dark place. So this, this happens, and the king's official records, uh, in the king's official records, it's written down that Mordecai saved the life of the king. The next thing that happens is we meet this character named Haman. Now, if you think about what's going on politically, what, what happens with Haman makes a lot of sense, because Haman is, is uh, appointed the new vizier to the king, and he's essentially given absolute power over the kingdom. He's, he's, it's as though the king himself were acting through anything that Haman does. And that might sound odd, but what's happening is that the king is freaking out. He's lost his wife. He's lost this massive war. He's broke, and people are trying to kill him. And so he, go, he, he finds Haman. He puts his trust in Haman. He has confidence in Haman, who's more or less saying, look, I can fix this. Uh, I'm the guy for the moment. I can do this. We will get things straightened out. And so Haman is uh, Haman's given this absolute power, and as part of uh, his new position, everybody in the king's court, everybody at the king's gate, which was not a gate so much as like an assembly uh, hall, everyone's supposed to bow to him whenever he shows up. We see in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 2, what happens. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you still disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day, he still would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated, since he had told them he was a Jew. So turning point, Mordecai reveals, I'm Jewish. That's the reason I won't bow. And this is what sets the dangerous uh, course of actions into motion. See, Mordecai is reclaiming his Jewish identity. And it's in part because of who Haman is. It tells us that Haman is an Agagite. And Agagites were descendants of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were a historically, uh, uh, they were the nemesis 
for Israel. In fact, when Israel was first going into, into the Exodus story, uh, they're tra- traveling through the desert, the Amalekites were the first ones to attack them. And when they attacked, they attacked from behind. And in the book of Deuteronomy, there's actually a moment where it says, never forget that the Amalekites did this to us. Never forget that they attacked us in the desert and they attacked us from behind. And the reason for that is because it was meant to be an act of terror. It was meant to be an act of absolute cruelty. Because in a caravan that's going through the desert, you put your soldiers up front in case you run into trouble. And at the rear of the, at the, rear of the caravan, you're going to have the women and children and the old and the sick. Everybody who's vulnerable is at the rear. So the Amalekites attacked, attacked from the rear because they wanted to demoralize Israel before they fought them face to face. It was about power. It was about cruelty. And so there's this historic enemy that Haman is a descendant of. And somehow or another, Mordecai knows this. And because of this, he won't bow. And I think it's because he sees, you know, the the Amalekites themselves... um, uh, in, in one book on this and one commentator on this, he talks about how uh, the Amalekites never, uh, we never see who their gods are. We never see them related or associated with gods. And it's possible that they didn't have any, which means that they didn't have any restraint. There was no, there was nothing to hold them back. There were no, no laws to hold them back morally from doing these horrible acts of violence. And so in a way, what Haman is, is as a descendant of the Amalekites, he's, uh, He's a symbol of power at all costs. And we see in his actions throughout the story that he really lives as a person uh, who's obsessed with power and clings to power and grasps for power and control. And so as this sort of idol of power, Mordecai will not buy, will not bow before him. This infuriates Haman. It makes him, uh, we, we begin to see his anger. And, and one Jewish scholar uh, who, who wrote about this talks about how you can kind of think of Haman as having this pet crocodile. And as the book goes along, he's feeding this crocodile and it grows and it grows and it grows. And we'll see the consequences of that uh, shortly. So Haman decides instead of going directly after Mordecai, who refuses to bow to him, that he wants to kill all of the Jews in Persia. So he goes to the king, and, and, and again, the king's in this place where he's kind of despondent. He goes to the king, and he says, look, we have this group of people living amongst us. They don't worship our gods. They don't really belong here. Let's go kill all of them and take all their stuff and refill the royal treasury. And the king's like, this sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. So they set a date. And they basically say, listen, on on such and such a day, uh, uh, we're going to go out and you're supposed to go kill all your Jewish neighbors and bring all of their stuff to the royal treasury. So word of this gets out and all the Jews in in Persia immediately freak out, as you would expect them to. Uh, And this includes Mordecai, who's now, you know, gone public with his identity as a Jew. And so that brings us to the passage that we read, Esther chapter 4, that we read uh, when we began the story. And I won't, I won't reread the whole thing, um, but just to summarize what took place, Mordecai's in, in, in sackcloth and ashes, which is what you would do uh, as an act of mourning, um, he's in sackcloth and ashes, he's sitting outside the king's gate, and he's mourning and wailing all day long. And Esther hears about this and, and trying to comfort him, she sends one of her servants to bring him clothes and say, you know, 
why don't you go home? Why don't you put on some clothes? Let's, let's move along here. And so he sends a message back and says, the king has ordered all of the Jews in Persia to be exterminated. Uh, you have to help us. You have to do something for us. And Esther, you know, replies, and, and she's been married about five years, and for the last 30 days, she hasn't seen or heard from the king. And so she doesn't know where she stands with the king. And in fact, there's a law that says that if she goes into the throne room to con confront him about this, if she goes and he hasn't invited her, he, she should be put to death. He can show her mercy, but the law is if you go in uninvited, you're going to be put to death. And Mordecai comes back to her and, and says, uh, you know, he says this. Let me read this exact, uh, exact passage. He says, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Another translation of that is you and your father's house will perish. Who knows, perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I'll go to the king, even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. So again, she's, she's trying to quiet him. She fears the king. She fears discovery as a Jew now that she knows about this law. And when she hears what Mordecai says, she's still resistant. Now, this passage is famous for that quote, for such a time as this, and, and there's, a good, there's good reason for that. But before we talk about that, we really need to talk about the verse before it. It's where Mordecai says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Again, you and your father's house will perish. Now, it, it's kind of a weird turn of phrase because he's essentially saying, if you do nothing, we're still going to be okay. God is going to take care of us, but you will perish. Now, if the Jews are going to be okay, why is Esther not going to be okay? Because what the reason is what Mordecai is talking about is her spiritual identity. He's saying you and your father's house will perish. Your father was Jewish. Your connection to the Jewish people is through him. If you deny your place as one of us now, you lose your place as one of God's people. You lose that identity. Relief will come from another place, but you and your family will perish. The legacy, the history, the sense of belonging, it will be gone. <clears throat> this is where the story, I think, becomes practical for all of us because if we're honest about our lives, we probably all could find ways in which we're compromised. There are aspects of our lives that we wish we could rip out of our lives, and there are aspects of our lives that maybe we're very comfortable with that would, be, that would demonstrate that we've compromised. We've compromised with the world around us. And what we see in this story is these compromised people being pushed up to a moment pushed up to a crisis where they have to decide, am I willing to risk something? Am I willing to overcome my compromise in order to, to stand with and identify with God's people? 
And in our culture, this is happening all the time. This happens all the time with questions related to religious liberty, with questions related to human sexuality, with issues like abortion, with issues like social justice. There are times where we as Christians are pushed up against these barriers and we have to decide, are we going to identify with the God of the Bible, with the people of God, and with his way of seeing the world, or are we going to stay silent? Are we going to stay compromised? This is Esther's moment where she's forced to make this decision. Another way to put all this is to say, what are we willing to, are we willing to pay the price for our faith? And this is a defining moment. It's for the, such a time as this. As Mordecai is encouraging Esther that he believes that God has orchestrated all of the events of her life to bring her to a place of power and influence where she might be able to help the Jews. I mean, consider all that has had to happen to bring her there. There's the banishment of the, ki- of the queen. There's the loss of the war. There's the beauty contest that makes her the queen. And now she's in the place. Now, cir- circumstantially, there's a Jewish woman married to a Persian king in the, at a time when this extermination order goes out. Esther's response is to say, if I perish, I perish. And the language there is intentional, with, that when Mordecai says, if you and your house will perish, uh, if she's recognizing, I'm, I'm, I either die to my Jewish identity or I die physically and I'd rather die physically than lose touch with who I am as one of God's people. I'm going to reclaim my identity. And you have to imagine the the challenge of the choice. She lives with all the pleasure of the palace, and she lives with no one knowing who she is. It's a very safe thing for her to just retreat and ignore Mordecai. But she gives that up for the sake of God's people. She calls for a fast. It's the only overtly religious thing in the whole book. She says, for three days and nights, don't, don't eat or drink. And, and we'll pray, and we'll see what happens. It's a huge crisis. And again, people often misunderstand, and again, in the VeggieTales version of this story, when, when she goes before the king, the king sees her, and she's in her royal robes, and she's so beautiful, he's just overcome and says, you know, and, and offers her mercy. But that's not what happened. What happened was she fasted for three days and three nights. How do you look when you haven't had food and water for three days and three nights? You don't look great. You look exhausted. She, she comes hollow. She comes broken before the king. And the king is troubled when he sees her. He's bothered. And this is important because what we see is the contrast between Esther and Haman is that where Haman is going to grasp for power, every time he, he comes up against it, Esther is choosing vulnerability. She's choosing to put herself at risk for the sake of other people. She's choosing to show her vulnerability when she goes before the king. So the king says, what do you need? What what can I do for you? I'll give you anything in the kingdom. And she says, come to a feast tomorrow night and bring Haman with you. And at the first night, the first feast, she doesn't bring up what's going on, um, but she remains troubled, and the king remains troubled about what's going on with her. And so he asks her, what, what can I do for you? I'll do anything for you. And you can have anything in the kingdom. What, what do you want? And she says, come back tomorrow night with an, for another feast and bring Haman with you. So Haman goes home, the the king goes home. On his way home, Haman sees Mordecai, and Mordecai refuses to bow, and he just gets furious again 
uh, about all of this. And he goes home and he talks to his friends and they stoke his anger and they stoke his, fr- his pride. He's feeding that pet crocodile. It's growing. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build the biggest gallows anybody's ever seen so that we can hang Mordecai on it. I'll go to the king tomorrow and ask his permission to kill him. Well, the king goes home, and the king's worried about what's going on with Esther. He's worried about what's going on in his kingdom, so he can't sleep. So he, he orders his chroniclers to come and to read him the, the stories about him. He's like, I'm really, t- I'm, really, I'm really nervous. I need to be entertained. Come and tell me about me. <laughs> and as they, as they read this story, uh, as they read this story, he comes across the story of Mordecai saving his life and realizes he never did anything to honor him. So he decides he has to do something to to honor Mordecai. And it's right at that moment in the morning when he makes that decision that Haman shows up in the king's court. It says, Haman entered and the king asked him what should be done for the man the king wants to honor. Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have him bring him a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. It it reminds me of a scene out of Looney Tunes, right? Like this is something Daffy Duck would do. Daffy Duck would, would come up with some sort of scheme and it would fail and he'd end up dragging Bugs Bunny through town going, this is what the king does for man he wants to honor. It's, it's, it's comic and it's comic tragedy. And Haman realizes at this point that he's in trouble. He realizes that things have begun to turn against him. He goes home from parading Haman. He goes home from parading Mordecai around town, and he tells his wife what's going on. And his wife, you can read it in the text, his wife literally says, is Mordecai a Jew? And he says, yes. And she goes, I think you're screwed. That's my, <laughs> that's my translation. Um, and so right at that moment, the king's servants come to the house to take him to the next night of the feast. And everything breaks down at this point because, again, Esther is troubled. Again, the king says, what can I do for you? You can ask for anything in the kingdom. And she says, save my life. Save my life because this death, this order, of, uh, this edict has gone out. All the Jews are going to die, and I'm a Jew. And the king's infuriated. He goes, how could this have happened? Who did this? And she said, it was Haman. And, and, and almost immediately, Haman is dragged away and he's hung on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. And there are a number of, uh, there are a number of interesting things that happen following this, but essentially what happens next is that the, the king can't rescind his order. The king can't say, never mind, don't bother the Jews. What he can do, though, and what he does, is he tells the Jews, take up arms, get yourself ready for this day, and kill anybody who comes after you. Anybody who, anybody who tries to kill the Jews on the day that the Jews are supposed to die, you should all, everybody in Persia should fight against them. So it's this very weird conflicting order. And when the day comes, there is a battle. But at the end of the battle, it's the enemies of the Jews, 
It's the anti-Semitic Persians who wanted to kill them and take their stuff who end up dying. So the, the, the net result is that the kingdom is a safer place for the Jews than before Haman uh, gave his order. And they inaugurate this feast, this feast called Purim, that, that you can see celebrated still to this day. People gather in synagogues, they read the whole book of Esther. Every time Haman's name is, is read, people yell and shout and throw things. Uh, it's an amazing celebration. And it's amazing because what happens at Purim, what happens at this moment, is a moment of re-identification for all these Jews living in exile. They have to show up, they have to risk themselves to say, I'm one of God's people, I'm gonna stand up and fight. Where they could, have, they could have slunk away, they could have ran away, they could have assimilated, they could have hid themselves as Persians. They, they renew their commitment as Jews. And that's what, that's what Purim is all about. And so what can we learn? I think the first thing that we should see is that Esther and Mordecai were Jews who weren't living their lives according to God's call. They were God's people who had denied their place as God's people. They were, had compromised themselves for the culture almost as deeply as you possibly can. And God used them anyway. And so those of us who feel compromised, who feel caught up in the world around you, who feel uh, too, too sinful, too dark, too compromised for God to be able to use, you can look at this story and go, nobody's gone too far. Nobody's gone too far to come home to their identity as one of God's people. You can look at this story as well and you can look at the contrast between power and vulnerability and see that vulnerability, risk on behalf of others is what leads to redemption, is what leads to thriving in the city. It was, it was her willingness to be vulnerable that saved the Jews. And finally, we can see Esther as an amazing signpost. She's not just a role model. She's a signpost that points us to Jesus. God's people stood condemned to death. Esther didn't cling to her royal position in the palace with all of its blessings and luxuries, but she put herself at great risk. She said, if I perish, I perish. She went into the throne room and she made an appeal. And by her selflessness, God's people were saved from condemnation. It's a foreshadow of this very thing that Jesus would do to redeem his people. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 describes it like this. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he, be, he, when, and when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Esther's story is our story. Esther's story of redemption is a foreshadow of our own redemption. We stand condemned by our sins. Our sins demand death. But Jesus didn't cling to his royal position. He didn't grasp at his own power and position. But he made himself a servant and put himself at risk for us. And greater than Esther, he took the punishment that we deserved. And then he entered the throne room and he makes a way for us to enter behind him to live in a restored relationship with our God and our King. 
And it's that redemptive work that we remember every week when we gather at the Lord's table. When we come and we remember that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread and broke it, giving thanks, saying, this is my body given for you. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. We come to this table week after week, year after year, eating the same meal, the same feast, the same thing to remember what God has done on our behalf. The risk he took on our behalf, the death he endured on our behalf, and the resurrection that happened that is our resurrection, that is our way to new life. If you're here and you're a Christian today, we invite you to come to this feast and remember what Jesus has done. Remember the promise that he's died, he's risen, and he will come again. If you're not a Christian today, we want you to reckon with this story. We want you to be challenged by what you hear. This, this meal isn't for you, but this gospel is. So hear it and come home. We celebrate by breaking off a piece of bread and dipping it in the juice or wine, whatever your conscience permits. We also have gluten-free and alcohol-free communion over here to my left and your right. Also, after you take communion, if you need prayer or you want to talk about the sermon, uh, please head to the prayer chapel over here where members are waiting to listen, to pray, and to care for you. Let's pray. God of mercy, you've made a way that we can approach you in grace and peace. You've made a way for people who are broken, compromised, and lost to come back home to you. You've showed us how to walk in faith and confidence when life throws pressure at us. You've shown us your faithfulness to people from generation to generation. As we come to this table, we remember that faithfulness. We, we remember that you've died, you've risen, and you will come again. We taste and see that you're good, and we anticipate the goodness to come when you make all things new. Give us faith and hope for that day. In Jesus' name, amen.